Proverbs 31 tells us of the virtuous woman. King Lemuel authors this proverb, and his words repeat the sayings of his mother. Interestingly, King Lemuel nor his mother were Jewish. In fact, he was believed to be a king of the Arabs in a nearby kingdom called Massah. King Solomon found truth in the sayings of Lemuel's mother. And as we see all over scripture, if an idea, a saying, or an insight is true, its origination doesn't matter. For if, as the Bible says, God is truth, then all truth is God's truth. Let me say that again. If, as the Bible says, God is truth, then all truth is God's truth. This is what we call common grace. Nuance is a podcast of The Collaborative where we wrestle together about living our Christian faith at work. Each season, we take a compelling aspect of our faith in the public square, apply it to our work, and seek nuanced answers from Christian faith. Searching for truth amid all the information bombardment we encounter every day can seem quite complicated. Now let's layer in a coworker who has another religion, or the boss of a different political party, or a client and customer who presents fundamentally different sexual ethics or the gender categories we find in the Bible. Well, Common Grace is a tool that can help understand a situation like this. Common Grace is the common grace God gives to all, to everyone. It is God's good gifts to all people, regardless of their faith confession. It is, as Jesus mentions in Matthew 5, the rain falling on the fields of the believing farmer and the non-believing farmer alike. Common grace can be seen in the major social movements of our country. Women's suffrage, civil rights, abolition, and universal education. However, it can be easy to look back in time and stand on the hard-earned work of social reformers. These, too, were times of great division, controversy, and tears as people sought to do the right thing. Well, where does God's grace appear today in our controversial times? Where is God's grace in critical race theory, the 1619 Project, Trump's agenda, gay rights? Hmm, well, I'm not so sure either. But I know common grace is a helpful concept to help us work with others different from ourselves and to share a winsome witness for Christ. And this brings us to today's guest. The Reverend Dr. Matthew Kamig is a Christian ethicist and public theologian at Fuller Theological Seminary. He has written widely on public theology, that is Christian citizenship, and will certainly bring us valuable insight into common grace today. My name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to Nuance. Again, my name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to today's episode. As always, I'm glad to have my good friend and collaborative partner, lay theologian, Crossland Stewart. Welcome, Crossland. Hey, good to be here. And Dr. K. Matt, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation, guys. Well, I appreciate it, and I am enjoying your latest work, Work and Worship Reconnecting Our Labor and Liturgy. You wrote this with Corey Wilson. 
and it's so good. I want to encourage our listeners, go check out this book. I will have a link to it in our show notes, as well as links to this uh, element of the book, as well as Dr. Kamen's, um uh, own works. So uh, you and I just connected a few weeks ago. You were in South Africa, but where are you now? I'm back home in Houston, Texas, or I teach for Fuller Seminary. Um, we have a, a Houston branch uh, here in Texas. So yeah, back home. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Matt, I would love for um, people to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, so if you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and in particular, how is this area of common grace? Um, why does it interest you so much? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So um, I have, uh, let's see, a little bit about myself. I grew up in Seattle. Uh, Washington, um, did my um, did my master's degree out in Princeton. Worked in New York City, um, and uh, developed a, a PhD in Los Angeles and uh, in Amsterdam. And so I have lived in cities that are not thickly known as Christian spaces. Right, mm-hmm. so not a lot of people go to church in Seattle or New York City, or Amsterdam. And so I have been surrounded by people who do not share my faith in the gospel um, from the very beginning of my life. I, I never grew up in the American South of, you know, Christendom. Oh, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, you know, so I have, I guess from a very early age, this question of common grace has always been a big one for me because I've been surrounded by people who do not share my faith. Um, uh, people who, who have no interest in the church or the gospel. And yet people who are my friends, people who have taught me things, people who have blessed me in a wide variety of ways. Um, one area of my research has to do with Christian and Muslim relations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a number of Muslim friends who, um, let's see, they've just gone through Ramadan. And so um, their their faith and their character has impressed me in a wide variety of ways. And so I think that as a Christian, someone, you know, deeply committed to the gospel who's been surrounded by non-Christians, I have had to develop a theological understanding of non-Christians just because I've been confronted with (laughs) non-Christian relationships my whole life. Um, And I've had to think about, you know, is, is God present in their life? Is God active in their life? And how is God present and active in their life? And how do I, how do I give thanks for these relationships? Um, and how do I discern what God might be teaching me, you know, in and through those relationships? And so I've just found throughout my life, common grace to be a really helpful uh, concept as I try to make sense of those relationships as a, as a Christian in non-Christian spaces. Matt, am I correct that when you did your studies in Amsterdam is where you developed more relationships with Muslims? Um. I, I absolutely did. I, I had um, Muslim friendships before that, but um, yeah, that was an important aspect of my research was looking at how Muslims were immigrating into Europe over the last 50 years and then 
looking at how Christians were responding as Muslims mm-hmm. moved into their neighborhoods. And, um, and that's where, yeah, the doctrine of common grace comes up again. Tell us a little bit about that difference between Europe and America. I've read that uh, the American milieu welcomes the outsider. Everybody can be an American, works you in. But the European struggle has been that there's a definition of what French is, and it's hard to become a French person. It, tell us a little bit about what you experienced. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated, but I mean, to make it simple, to be an American uh, is more of an idea than an ethnic background. Um, so ideally speaking, if you care about freedom and um, you want to work hard and um, then you can become an American, no matter what your religion or your race or your ethnicity. Um, and it's not the case um, in a place like France or Germany or Britain. Mm. Um, mm. It, it, there's a much higher bar to actually be considered British or be considered French. Um, and so racial, ethnic, religious minorities have a difficult time con- being considered truly French. Um, and so those are, those are harder questions in Europe um, because they've, they haven't had that level of diversity from their very beginning, mm-hmm. um, such mm-hmm. as in the United States. But there's there's a lot more to it than that. But I, I guess I would say that there's something about Islam that the French would say, you can't be truly French and be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because to mm-hmm. be French is to be secular in a very important sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot more to it than that, but there, there, so those are the big ones. It makes assimilation hard. Well, we're particularly looking at Christian citizenship at our workplace. You heard me describe common grace in the introduction. How would you describe common grace? Common grace, I would describe it as um, a way of talking about God's activity beyond the church. Um, God's activity in the world. Um, And it is grace, I'm sorry, it is common in that um, it is God's action throughout the world with Christians and non-Christians. And it is grace in that it is unmerited. Um, There's nothing that human beings have done to deserve it. And so common grace is a theological term that helps us talk about the ways that God is continually blessing the earth, and humanity in common, Um, as opposed to the ways in which God is moving and speaking and acting in and through his church Mm. in a Mm. special and distinct way. So as Christians, we want to say that God is moving through his church in a way that he is not moving through an art gallery or a, a science laboratory or a Muslim mosque, that there's something, there's a special active relationship between God and his church. Um, Something happens at baptism uh, in a church that is not happening when a Muslim is fasting. So that's, that's a special grace activity. Common grace is, is that more general blessing that God is, is blessing all people in common. Mm -hmm. Okay, I hear you. Help me with this, though. Um, 
help me think through that uh, we try to push and encourage people to see their workplaces as a place where the kingdom can break out. And if you do work in an art gallery or we have an arts fellowship and the arts are one unique way to uh, receive blessing and experience the divine, how do we understand special grace only being from the church, but then when a Christian is in one of those places, are they taking part in common or special? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question. I think that um, what's important to know, so Abraham Kuyper is one of the key theologians who talks about common grace, uh, as is uh, Herman Bobbank. And both of them would say that um, common grace is a profound mystery um, in really important sense in that um, it's very difficult for us to discern what exactly and where exactly special and common grace are active in the world. And so it's important that we not <laughs> say for certain, here is common grace and here is special grace. The important thing sure. is to know that, that the Lord is active in our workplaces. So God is active in the laboratory. God is active in the business. He's active in the universities, active in the hospital. And so as Christians moving into the, into the marketplace, we need to have a posture of openness and curiosity of what God has been doing and what God will do mm. there um, in a powerful mm. way. And that is really the payoff of common grace for a worker is that it changes your posture as you enter into the workplace. So you don't have a posture of saying, I'm bringing God to the workplace. Rather, you have an understanding that God is already there. God is already active. And so you're not the one who's bringing all of the answers and all of the solutions mm -hmm. and all of the truth. But you come with a posture that, hey, I have something to learn in the workplace. Um, my coworkers can be a blessing to me. My coworkers can teach me something. And so you come to work, yeah, with a sense of curiosity and mm. humility mm. and excitement about what God might do beyond mm. what you know. That that curiosity concept, it's so true. Uh, David Brooks for the New, with the New York Times recently wrote on that and that so much of our division today uh, has lost curiosity. There's such certainty. Uh, we're going to have his wife, Ann Snyder, on the next episode to help us look at prophetic voice. Okay, but critical race theory, pro-life movement, the gay agenda, climate change. I mean, I feel like there, we've lost so much curiosity. Um, certainly, we need to declare truth as Christ followers and see those things. How does a Christ follower go about employing the curiosity that Common Grace encourages when they come across an idea that is even built upon poor starting points and poor foundations. And I might add, how do they do it without diluting or feeling like they're diluting their own faith or compromising mm. their own faith? Yeah, no, those are wonderful questions. And that's where I have to go back to the distinction between special grace and common grace. That um, the special grace that we, we have received in Jesus Christ and in the word of God um, helps us to discern um, 
the voices and principalities and powers of this world. And so um, we are not without tools of discernment to reflect upon um, these different issues and voices and questions that you brought up. Um, scripture is helpful as a guide, not simply for our personal spirituality, but for our public life. Um, scripture can guide us um, and help us to think about these things. Um, so uh, special grace helps us to ground ourselves in um, the unique word of the gospel. But common grace encourages us to have a posture of openness to understand that um, there may be aspects of God's truth that we haven't fully understood yet. And um, that as we go into the workplace, God has more things to teach us. And so we need not fear. Um, and that's probably the most important thing to talk about here is fear. Mm. Um, when we move into, when we move in non-Christian spaces, um, if our posture is that of fear and fighting, um, that tells us something about the level of assurance that we have mm. in our salvation and in God's sovereignty. Um, if we, if we think that we're alone in the workplace, that God isn't there, um, if we think that God is weak and that we have to fight for God, um, that sort of fear and fighting posture that we see amongst our Christian brothers and sisters, so um, it, it, it tells us something about their level of assurance in God's sovereignty and power. Wow. You know, that's a great thing to think about. And it maybe partly answers my next question, and that is, you know, we are in such divisive times and there's polarization everywhere. You know, from a layman's perspective, how do we understand or help to modulate emotions from eclipsing common grace? Because it just feels like common grace gets lost and part of that may be because I don't I don't hear the church talking a lot about common grace. So, you know, I remember when I first learned the concept of common grace and it was much more developed beyond just the difference between special grace and common grace. I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is so freeing." Um because it allows me to enter into lives and with others who are not like me. Now, look, I don't do that perfectly and I have my own bias and all that kind of stuff, but why why is it that our emotions just overshadow this really important idea of common grace? Yeah, uh, um you know, going back to your comment about division, um I think you know, what we're all seeing in political life in America today is the increasing tribalism of our political life in which our political opponents are seen as just completely other creatures. Um, like we don't even share a common humanity, right? They're, they are completely other to us. And so if their side wins, then my species is in danger. Right. My my way of life is in danger if their if their side wins. 
And so there's this sort of dramatic othering of our neighbor, that they are just totally different, totally other. And what the dominant what the doctrine of common grace does is it, it reaffirms that we are one humanity living in one creation with one God. Yeah. And yeah. despite the divisions that sin creates, um, at, at a deeper level of creation, uh, we, we share a common humanity and a common humanity. I'm sorry, and a common creation. And so... Um, that means we can reason together. Um, we can form some level of moral connection. We can persuade one another. So common grace gives us a level of hope for political discourse that many others don't have. So, and I think you you sense that in the political discourse that people have given up on persuasion. And it's just about oh, yeah. raw. Oh, yeah. It's just raw power now. It, it's just cynical uh, joking and mocking and dismissal. Um, there's not an attempt to reason with one another, particularly when facts don't seem to matter. Yeah. And so, common grace binds us, and I think. One of my other friends uh, who's written with me in the past, his name is Makoto Fujimura. He's oh, yeah. A, a reformed, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah a reformed we love him. Artist. Yeah, we love him. Yeah, he's talked about common curse as well, which is that all of us are sinful and fallen. And so if we, if we as Christians really do reflect on our own sinfulness, that we are mm. just as sinful and broken as anyone else, that we are just as deserving of punishment, then that changes our posture in political life because we don't believe that we have it all together in a way that our, our neighbors don't. Um, wow. But that's it's, great. it's that's only great. by the grace of God that, that we have this. Which should then free us up for the curiosity you were referencing earlier. Yeah. Matt, would you take, I uh, didn't warn you on this, so if you need to have another topic, that's okay. But would you take something like critical race theory, which is so lightning or electric, and use common grace to help a biblically-based Christian engage something that uh, can seemingly be so uh, dangerous? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you should have my friend Jeff Leo on the podcast sometime to talk about that because he's written his whole dissertation on uh, reform theology and critical race theory. He's, he's phenomenal. Oh, so wow. I'm gonna, what, oh, wow. We, yeah, so I'm going to draw from him because I've, I've learned quite a bit from him on, on critical race theory. Um, so the first thing is just sort of a point of technicality. Critical race theory um, is it's not a worldview. It's not a political movement. It's not a big... Um, scary thing. It, critical race theory comes from the 1970s and 1980s, just a discussion between uh, legal theorists. And the legal theorists are trying to understand the failure of the civil rights movement to create equality in America. Mm. So mm. essentially, in the civil rights movement, you have all of these rules against discrimination. So we have all of these laws in America against discrimination. 
and um, these legal theorists are trying to understand why the law didn't work. That despite all of these legal protections, America continues to discriminate um, in all kinds of subtle ways against um, people of color, against women, and, and so forth. That essentially, um, we find ways to hate each other <laughs> um, because we're human beings. So it's just legal theorists trying to understand how this works. Um, and a term like intersectionality is simply trying to understand how, um, say, a poor Black woman in Los Angeles would struggle to get ahead. That there are three things she is contending with. That she is Black, that she is a woman, and that she is poor. So it's not just her Blackness that is a problem. It's not just her womanness, and it's not just her poorness. But it's all three of those intersecting problems. Um, and so how do I, as a Christian, reflect upon this? Well, um, these are many of these critical race theorists are not Christians, right? Um, some of them are drawing upon uh, Marxist categories um, mm -hmm. and Marxist categories that I don't find particularly helpful because I'm a Christian. Uh, but also just because I don't find Marxism particularly helpful. <laughs> um, but what I would say is because of my belief in common grace, I, I come to this theory with a posture of curiosity about mm. what I might learn, uh, particularly because I am a white male who is relatively privileged. So I'm oh, very aware. There's the P that. word. <laughs> Don't yeah. turn off the podcast, people. Keep listening. This is good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but like, there are things that a poor black woman living in Los Angeles probably knows that I don't know because mm -hmm. she is living mm -hmm. on a different side of the city than I am. And so because of common grace, I believe that I have something to learn from her and probably something to learn from critical race theory. That said, I also believe in something called the antithesis, which we have not talked about, which uh, is this understanding that there is real disagreement about what truth is. There is real disagreement about what the purpose of life is and what life is for. And critical race theory and Christianity have some differences of opinion uh, about those core questions. And so um, you're going to expect some differences to emerge. Um, and so that's, that's, I mean, it's a huge topic and it's much more complicated than this, but I would implore Christians who are thinking about critical race theory to to have a more nuanced understanding of both the beauty and the brokenness mm -hmm. of this theory and the ways in which it can be helpful and the ways it can be, you know, destructive or just not helpful sure. in thinking about race. And I think what common grace helps us to understand is that things are just more complicated than what cable news mm -hmm. will tell us. Isn't that the truth? Preach it. 
Well, it's been so interesting to me to see the reaction because I went to Emory University in the 90s, a very progressive institution, and we didn't have the CRT term, but this perspective and way of treating me, especially as a white male evangelical Republican, <laughs> um, I, I certainly felt it and experienced it. Um, but I come to this theory with Jesus' instructions in mind to care for the poor and the least of these, and that, yes, a Black woman in poverty in Los Angeles has a harder time than I've had. I'll never forget, um, I was at Princeton Seminary, too. Were you at the university or seminary? The seminary. Okay. I, I you're, you were behind me a few years. Um, but I remember that one of the professors made the point that <clears throat> uh, Gallup had done a study on who were the most spiritual people in America. And they had these markers for what they meant by spiritual. And it came out that um, African-American women in the South had the strongest markers of community, church engagement, scripture, memory and understanding, um, humility, a service, tithing. I mean, all the markers of a great Christ follower. And then he asked the question, why are you up here with all these old dead white men that we're reading in this very blessed, uh, rich area, Princeton's gorgeous, as opposed to if y'all want to go serve the church, why aren't you in Savannah, Georgia at the shrimp boats? You know, and it, it was very compelling. So I am sad that because of social media and the television, um, there's not a moment to recognize God's common grace and CRT helps me to be more Christ-like, but absolutely the Marxist tendencies in the other directions um, are, are too far. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that that is, you know, if we're going to be having conversations about faith and public life, um, all too often um, Christians or non-Christians, we love to have enemies and we love, you know, a clear black and white clear winner and loser, um, a clear line of good and evil. And so critical race theory is, you know, sort of the, the problem of, of the, the issue of the day in which Zeitgeist, you know, Zeitgeist. people are yearning for, a, you know, a hard fight of good and evil. And what common grace teaches us is really that things are much more complex than when we would like them to believe. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, those who we would imagine to be our enemies are actually people that we need to be, you know, listening to as well. And that does not mean at all that we compromise our, our commitment to the gospel. Um, but believing somehow that being kind to those we disagree with is, uh, is a compromise of the gospel is is just it's it's so opposite of of who Jesus was right and, and what Jesus came to to believe that either we're kind or we're Christian is just a ridiculous um, way of approaching faith and public life issues. You know that's a great lead in or segue to the next question that comes to my mind, and that is, you know, how do we cultivate? Um, common grace or practicing it, uh, because honestly, I, I, I don't know. There are a lot of people who do not, they might be able to articulate the definition, but in reality, 
it it doesn't really show up, you know. And so how might we cultivate this in a way that would be meaningful and transformative and that kind of thing? I love that question. I love that question. And not to <laughs> not to plug this book on work and worship. But plug <laughs> you can plug, plug it. That's plug. okay. I'll hold it up so you can feel humble. <laughs> But I I would say that this is where theology falls short, because you can have a theology of common grace and still just be a jerk in your daily life. (laughs) Amen. You can have have all the right theological answers um, and not live it. And with this particular book, we were passionate about helping workers develop practices or habits by which they could live the gospel in their workplace. And so what I would say is how you would cultivate this is you would actually pray for your coworkers. You would pray for your boss. You would, you would ask God to speak and to teach you things through these people that you work with to say, God, this coworker that is ticking me off, right? <laughs> Would you, would you help me? Would you teach me and shape me and form me through this relationship? Would you show me what you have for me in this, in this place? And so um, I think a really active prayer life that goes on, not simply in the sanctuary, but in the workplace where you enter into the workplace saying, God, what do you have for me here today? Um, I, I'm expecting you to move and act and make yourself known. And I want to grow and follow you here in the workplace. And, and then finally, I would say giving thanks to God for your non-Christian mm-hmm. coworkers, giving thanks to God for the ways in which they've humbled you or taught you or blessed you so that you can begin to understand that they too are a part of what God is doing in your life and in the world um, and that God's activity in the workplace is bigger than just you, you know, because often when we pray about our work, it's sort of, God, would you help me with this? God, would you do this for me? Would you, it's a very sort of me centered prayer life. Um, but when we be, begin to open up our prayer life um, beyond ourselves, then that starts to actually change our posture. So you asked about how do we live yeah. this? I yeah. think it is through a robust prayer life. That's great. Hence why corporate worship is so important. It uh, Online worship is a nice convenience, but it does not come close to the embodied nature of our faith and how we're formed, we're shaped. And then when we show up on Monday morning at 830 to their offices, uh, we have been shaped in a different direction. Okay. That was great on how we cultivate it. How, though, can common grace be abused? Looking at um, a certain agenda or movement in the country and somebody say, oh, well, that is of God. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're getting right out of their cases. Essentially, when you start pointing at things and saying that is God, God, mm-hmm. God is mm-hmm. doing X and God is doing Y, rather than more humbly saying maybe God has something to teach us mm-hmm. here. So having having a little more humble posture about our ability to name what God wants in any 
and what God is doing in public life. So, you know, you can see that as like, this is pure, this is clearly God's political candidate, God's presidential candidate. You know, God is clearly raising this person up to be president or this person to be governor. So that level of confidence, um, but also um, sort of a, a, a level of confidence that dismisses the role of um, sin and evil in the world you know, and, and the ways in which um, the evil one um, influences us. So I think, I mean, an example of that is essentially saying, you know, all religions are seeking God in the mm. same way. Mm. So all religions are just ways of worshiping the same God. There's no meaningful difference between them. Or yeah. um, or like, I can experience God in nature and at an art concert, and so I don't need to go into worship right, anymore. Right, right. Yeah. Or I can worship God through my work, so I don't need to be in Christian community anymore. Mm -hmm. um, or I can find God while I do yoga, so I don't need to pray <laughs> to Jesus anymore. Um, so it's sort of this... Um, all of life is God, and so the 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 special uniqueness of Scripture and the cross and the person yeah. of Jesus fall apart and just sort of dissolve into everything is God. I've always felt like the boundaries of common grace are bounded by Scripture, and um, it's that other perspective you mentioned that's kind of the Oprahization of society. And uh, we have, as our church has tried to shift in a more missional direction, we've been very clear, more clear, and raised the bar on our membership process. Because we don't want to unknowingly give somebody a false sense of salvation. And I'll have folks that um, give a good Oprah statement of faith, <laughs> and that's not the gospel. And so it is important, particularly when it comes to church. And being a Christ follower, we know what that specific grace is. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your teaching and, and writing to help us think deeply about common grace. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a blessing. And uh, look forward to doing this again. Thank you both. Wow. He was Amazing. <laughs> what I really liked about him is that he not only has studied the doctrine of common grace mm -hmm. and understands how it relates to public theology, but he has lived it his entire life. Sure. When he talked about, you know, all the different environments and the places that he has lived. And so, um, and you can just tell in his demeanor, it's a part of. Yeah. The fabric of his life. Yeah, I, I, I need to be more kind. Uh, me um, too. <laughs> and in full disclosure to our listeners, I did not warn him about critical race theory. And okay. <laughs> he, I think, hit it out of the park. He did. He did. Um, he, I loved when he said, what is common grace? God's activity beyond the church. Yes. God's activity beyond the church. Now, I relate that back to our first episode when Vince Baycote talked about um, the public square being everything after the benediction. Yes. So it's kind of a spatial place in society. 
And then this idea of common grace is, well, all the activity God's doing outside the benediction. Well, and then the added thing of that there is mystery there. Mm. And I just think we tend to be, we tend not to enter in because we can't calculate what's going to happen or, you know, how we're going to, you know, if we're going to mess it up, quote unquote. But this idea that there is mystery in common grace. And so there should be a freeing um, that should feel that should free us up to enter mm. in and love our neighbors it wherever should. we encounter them. It should. And I know you would agree. There's that idol of control. And oh, yeah. if I can control bad ideas or social movements that are detrimental to the common good, detrimental to the witness of scripture, then I win, they lose. And not being in control is hard. But you know, the other thing he said that may be as big as a control thing is he said, we are looking for people to hate. Mm. It is in our fallenness that we are looking for an opponent. All of humanity, every age All of, of humanity. History. Mm-hmm. And that, that just means some of these things are just easy targets. And we've got to get We've got to recognize that about ourselves so mm-hmm. that we can, you know, mitigate that and understand, okay, part of my emotional response is it just that I have had a bad day and I want to hate on something or somebody. And I could see somebody listening saying, well, I mean, I don't hate anybody. I don't want, I don't actively look, but it is that deeper element of just being human that, yes. it, that, that there's not us. And rather that us might be me and my family or me and my social group, my demographic, my race, my gender, like there's this us and them part of our nature. Well, and I think that goes, I mean, sorry, everything kind of goes into the next thing where he said, we're talking about our, where we work, that we tend to think as Christians, we're bringing God to where we work. Mm. Well, Hello, God is already there, and common grace should give us the understanding of that and therefore change our posture mm. as we go to work. Yeah, there was a great pastoral care professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, uh, Andrew Purvis, and he was Scottish, and he would stand up and say, now let me tell you something, and I'm going to stop the Scottish accent right there. Um <laughs> Please, thank you. (laughs) He would say, don't you dare walk into a hospital room on a pastoral care visit and think you're bringing Jesus. Oh, he has been there at work long before you got there. No, your job is to discern his work and to help make it known. That is such a great thought. It also made me think of um, one of the most profound um, demonstrations of common grace was something that was extended to me that I experienced in my MBA program. I was drowning. And I was, uh, just for our audience, I was an accelerated program. So they mm-hmm. took two years and crammed it into nine months. And we spent 14 hours a day in a building. I mean, it's just crazy. And I was drowning in this particular class. And I can remember 
very clearly, even to this day, this guy who walked over and said, you look like you need some help and don't understand what's being asked. (laughs) What can I do for you? Mm. And he then explained the problem. And when he left the room, I sobbed because I was so stressed out. And this guy was not a believer, but he was just, it was his kindness and it and there I experienced common grace and I had the thought while Matt was talking, I would be better served if I would observe more carefully the times when the Lord extends me common grace through others. Because it's rare, isn't it? Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that leads to my new favorite phrase, common curse. Oh my goodness. Yes. I've never heard that. I haven't heard that. And evidently that's Mako Fujimura's one of our favorite guys. Common curse. His his term. You yeah. haven't heard that before? No. Well, and we've read so much of his stuff and we need to get yeah. in on our podcast at some point. But wow, what a concept. Because I find like um church members sometimes the church can people can get hurt. People hurt people, and they are so shocked and doubly impacted because there's this assumption that, well, if it's Christians, if it's the church, it should all be love and tulips and beautiful interactions, and sometimes we hurt each other. It's So there's not this perspective of an, ex, an understanding of brokenness at the, in the church. Now, I'm not saying we should, and that's not an excuse. We need to wear a higher standard. But going into your workplace knowing, look, everybody here is broken. Yeah. And even me. Even me, it's not just everybody else is the problem. I love well, and that. then he tagged on that that other phrase, dramatic othering. And I thought, we mm. really do that with national um, causes, whether mm. it's politics or CRT or something else. Yeah, it's yeah. like those people are not image bearers. Mm-mm, I mean, we mm-mm. just wipe away the divine in them. One of the I've written and preached on this. Uh, one of the most formative experiences in my college days. I was uh, leading college Republicans with a friend, and boy, <laughs> we were hot to trot about Hillary Clinton and just ranting and raving. And the leader of the InterVarsity College Ministry pulled me aside, and he said, "Case, have you ever prayed for Hillary Clinton?" <laughs> and I, I said, "Well, no." He said, "You know, just." Just try that this week. I want to challenge you every day to pray for her. <laughs> I came back well, next I, week. And I, you know, I still disagreed with a lot of her choices. Of course. And yet it just, I realized she too is a child of the king and I couldn't hate her as much. Dog on it. Well, and we're supposed to be praying for them, mm. Um, mm. you know, and I know people that won't yeah. pray oh, no. for the leader that's in the opposing political party. And I think shame on us. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, it goes back to what Matt said early on, where uh, we we fear that God is not big enough. Yeah. yeah. And how is that possible? Well, and likewise, I was honored to be in the... Um, inaugural, the presidential inaugural prayer service that's held every time for any president, regardless of party. And I was seated just 10 feet from the president and the vice president and their wives. And their humanity overwhelmed me. 
And I thought, you know what? I, I'm not seeing them through a television screen. I'm not seeing them with a talking head telling me what to think. I'm not seeing them through social media. And the weight of what they were carrying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is good stuff. Common grace, people. Use it at work. Right. And share that winsome witness for Christ. Crossland, thanks for being with us. It's been fun. Thanks. We believe strongly that great conversations can stir hearts and minds. To further encourage this, we've included a link in the show notes to a spiritual formation exercise related to today's discussion. Help us spread the word about Nuance. Like the show, share, and subscribe so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative, the faith and work ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando. Nuance is produced by Candy Goats PJ Weary and edited by Zach Baldwin. Music composed and performed by Fletcher Wilson. Nuance is made possible by the generosity of the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Jr. Foundation. For more episodes, visit collaborativeorlando.com, our YouTube channel named The Collaborative Orlando, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our three different fellowships, vocational guilds, and other programs, to subscribe to our newsletter, our bi-monthly blog, visit us online and join us on social media. On behalf of Crossland Stewart and myself, thanks for joining us. And remember that most of life is not black and white, but rather lived in the nuance.